Well, good morning once again. Good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16? Chapter 16, as we work our way through the Gospel of Matthew, we read in verse 1, Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asked him uh, that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Interesting little combo we got going on here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Who were they? Just briefly, the Sadducees were the liberals and materialists of their day. They didn't believe in angels, spirits, miracles, immortality, the resurrection of the dead, or anything else supernatural. That's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> they were loyal to the Roman government and cared nothing about rabbinic tradition, had no problem making religious, cultural, or political compromises. Their uh, motto seems to have been expediency at all cost. They were aristocratic and associated with the wealthy class. They themselves became wealthy because they were the ones, guys, who controlled the very lucrative temple concessions of selling the sacrificial animals and changing the money into uh, temple shekels and how corrupt that was. But they made a lot of money doing that. They became very wealthy. They only accepted the Pentateuch as being the Word of God, the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But even then, they so, so spiritualized the Scriptures that really it lost all meaning. Okay? When, you, when you overly spiritualize the Scriptures, then you can make it say anything, and therefore it says nothing. Now, the Pharisees were on the other end of the scale. They were the conservatives and the fundamentalists. Uh, they were also separatists who worked very hard to keep Jewish culture and traditions free from Greek culture and influence. Uh, these Pharisees, they believed in all the law and the prophets as being the word of God. So our whole Old Testament, they believed in, that was their Jewish scripture, they called it the Tanakh. And they believed that all the law and the prophets were inspired by God, although what they did was they added to it. See, the Sadducees took away stuff, only the first five books is really God's word, the Pharisees said, no, it's all God's word, but then they added the oral traditions that we talked about at the beginning of chapter 15, the tradition of the elders, as they were, it was called. These were oral traditions that supposedly, it wasn't true, but supposedly God had later given to Moses and uh, were not written down, were not the written word of God, but passed down orally from one generation to the next, and they, were put, they put these oral traditions on the same level of authority as the written word of God. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees were bitter enemies. It seems their hatred for each other was only eclipsed by their mutual hatred for Jesus. And that's why they've teamed up here. And so joining forces, they tracked Jesus down. And as he came into Galilee, uh, they attempted to trap him by asking him to do a sign. Now, a sign in the Greek is a word for miracle. It's called a sign because it usually points to something. Jesus' miracles were intended to point people to him as Messiah and Son of God. And, of course, they wanted a sign to prove 
he was really the Messiah. Now, that's kind of an amazing thing to think about because just earlier, not too long before this, Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children, maybe 15,000, 20,000 people with just five small barley biscuits and a couple of small pickled fish. And they were all glutted, took up 12 small baskets full of fragments. Then not long after that, he fed 4,000 men plus women and children with, you know, seven loaves and a few fish. And uh, they picked up seven large baskets of what was left over. Now, this is coming, um, you know, Jesus is only about maybe eight months from the cross at this point. So already he's done hundreds, if not thousands of miracles. And so what are they looking for when they ask him for a sign or a miracle? Well, in verse 1 we read, They came and testing him, asked him that he would show them a sign from what? From heaven. From heaven. You see, the rabbis taught back then that a demon could perform earthly miracles because earth was the domain of Satan. Therefore, demons could perform earthly miracles, but only God could perform miracles that pertain to the sky. So when they came to Jesus and said, show us a sign from heaven, what they were saying is, look, we know you've fed thousands of people with small amounts of food. We know you've walked on water. You've healed the lame. You have cleansed lepers. You even raised the dead. We understand all that. But see, all those are earthly signs. I mean, a demon could do that. You might be a demon. You might be possessed by a demon. You say you're the Messiah. Look, show us a sign from heaven and we'll believe. Just what they were looking for, I don't know. You know, maybe the sun racing across the sky. Or, uh, you know, I don't know what they were looking for. But they wanted something else. And, you know, at this point, Jesus had had enough with them. Their hard-hearted unbelief was not rooted in any sincere desire to know the truth. They were only looking for things they could use against him. And so he wasn't going to give in to their sensational kind of demands. He, they said, show us a sign from heaven so we can know who you really are. Jesus says, well, you know what? That's interesting you talk about the heavens. Because I've noticed something about you guys. Verse 2, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. You know, there's an age, apparently it's an age-old saying, okay, Maybe you've heard it. Red sky at night is a sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. I learned that when I was a kid. Why? I have no idea. <laughs> you know, my dad wasn't a sailor. We didn't make our living on the water. Why I knew that from a young age, I have no idea. It stuck with me, though. So when I first read this in the Scripture, I'm thinking, wow, that goes back a long way, that saying. Because here it is here. Probably predates Jesus by a good amount of time. I don't know, but... Um, but when Jesus quoted this proverb, he was saying to these guys, look, you know, you can tell what kind of weather is coming by the signs in the sky. But you're blind to the sign of the times that tells you of the Messiah's coming. You say, what signs? Well, we know there were over 300 prophecies of Messiah or the Lord Jesus Christ's first coming in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, I'm not going to go through all 300. I'll give you three, Okay. All right, you can dig out the rest on your own, right? Um, but three that I think Jesus had in his mind when he said, you know, you guys are good at looking at the sky and going, oh, yeah, it's going to be a good day tomorrow, or oh, storm is coming. You know, that stuff is trivial, right? But you know what? The signs that God has given in his word, 
that tell you when the Messiah is coming, you're blinded to. You're blinded to. And I think Jesus had in mind, I think, three primarily. The first was the coming of John the Baptist. Now, we know in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, God is prophesying about how he was going to send a forerunner who would come before the Messiah. He said in Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And as we have already talked about, uh, back in those days, whenever a king was going to visit a certain part of his kingdom, he would always send a forerunner or a herald out before him. And the herald would sometimes go out several weeks or even several months before the king was ready to make his appearance. And basically it went like this. Look, the king is coming. Get that trash off your lawn. Okay? Fix your fence. It looks like it's fallen down there. Paint that house. The king is coming. And we want to get everything ready for the coming of the king. Things need to look right. Okay? Well, John was the forerunner of the king of kings. He wasn't worried about houses. He was worried about hearts. Clean up your heart was John's message. Repent. Get your heart right with God. The king is coming. And when he comes, he's going to have some very important things to say to you. But you prepare now for the coming of the king by getting your heart right. Now look, they all knew the prophecy of the Messiah's forerunner. And when John showed up in John chapter 1, John the Baptist showed up in John's gospel, chapter 1, and he was baptizing by the Jordan, the Jewish leader sent a delegation out there to ask him, okay, who are you? Are you the Messiah? No, I'm not the Messiah. Uh, are you Elijah the prophet? No, not Elijah. Are you the prophet that Moses said was going to come eventually? No, not him either. Well, who are you? Because okay, we got to go back and tell the folks who sent us who you are. Who are you? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said, Isaiah 40 verse 3. I mean, you know what they should have done? They should have started doing backflips. Because here was a great sign. That Messiah is coming. Here's this forerunner. He's not far behind. So that was one sign they should have really looked at and got excited about. The second one was the miracles Messiah was prophesied to do when he came. We've looked at these before. Since you're in the neighborhood, turn to Matthew chapter 8. We'll read just one passage. Matthew 8, starting at verse 16. When evening had come, they brought to him, to Jesus, many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Now, you have to understand, God, uh, Matthew is a Jew, writing to primarily the Jewish people. And he wants to present to them Jesus, their long-awaited Messiah and King. But he knows the only way the Jews are going to accept Jesus as their Messiah is if he proves to them he is Jesus is fulfilling all the prophecies that were given in the Old Testament about the Messiah when he came. So sprinkled throughout Matthew's Gospel, every time Jesus did some miracles or a miracle, Matthew would say, oh, he did this, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, and he would quote one of the Old Testament prophets. Sixteen times he did that throughout his Gospel, because he knew. The only way they were going to receive Jesus as Messiah was if he proved to them Jesus was fulfilling Messianic prophecies. Now, one of the biggest ones that was written about the uh, Messiah when he came, because remember, 
there were false messiahs always coming down the pike in Israel. And God knew that, of course, that that would happen. And so God said, basically, look, you're going to know my Messiah, my true Messiah when he comes, because I am going to give him the power to perform miracles, heal the sick, cast out demons, and so on and so forth. And you know what? That's how they would know. That would be a tremendous sign to them that this person was, in fact, the Messiah. Well, we read in different places in the Old Testament where that was prophesied. I'll give you one, Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. When the Messiah comes, he shall open the eyes of the blind. He shall unstop the ears of the deaf. He shall cause the lame to leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. I mean, when the Messiah comes, he's going to heal sickness and disease and so on. This will be a mark of authenticity, a mark of genuineness, that he is, in fact, the Messiah. Great sign. I'll give you one more. This one is a big one. You don't have to turn there because I'll just paraphrase it for you. But there was a prophecy in Daniel 9, one of the greatest prophecies God ever gave to us in the Scriptures. You can read Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27 at your leisure. But you remember how that at one point God sent an angel to Daniel and again gave him one of the greatest prophecies we have in the Word. And the angel said basically, Daniel, God has set aside 70 seven-year periods that he is going to be using to deal exclusively with Israel. 69 of those are going to be contiguous. They're going to be continuous. One seven-year period will be left for the end. But those 69 seven-year periods, remember now, prophetic uh, month is 30 days. So you have 69 seven-year periods, 483 years, or 173,880 days. Now, we know the commandment went forth from Artaxerxes to Nehemiah, on March 14, 445 B.C., to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. If you start counting and you add that 173,880 days to March 14, 445 B.C., it brings you out to April 6, 32 A.D., Palm Sunday, the only day when Jesus officially presented himself as king in Israel and allowed himself to receive adoration. You remember how that at least two different times, maybe three, during the course of his ministry, they tried to take him by force and make him king, right? But he always slipped away, right? Why? Because his time had not yet come. He was waiting for a very specific day, one that was given to Daniel in prophecy, which would be fulfilled on April 6th, 32 AD. Now, if these Jewish leaders had been studying God's word like they should have been, if they really had known prophecy like they should have, they would have known about when. They might have not known the exact day. you got to adjust for leap years and different things. But they would have known about when. They should have known that God had prophesied that Messiah was going to show up around a certain time and they were living in that time period. And Jesus is saying to them, look, can't you discern the signs of the times? Don't you understand Bible prophecy? You know how many people today do not know Bible prophecy? In fact, I'll say this, the religious community today, Christians, Christian leaders, are about as ignorant and blind to the signs of Jesus' second coming as the Jews and Jewish leaders were blind to the signs of his first coming. And Jesus Christ held them accountable for not knowing the signs of the times. He holds us as his people accountable for knowing Bible prophecy. Why? Because 27% of the, of the Bible is prophecy. 
If you don't study Bible prophecy, you're leaving out a big chunk of God's Word. And God gave us these prophecies so that the events that were coming would not take us by surprise, that we would not be in darkness, that these things would, t- would overtake us like a thief. Paul says, We are all sons and daughters of light and of the day. We are not children of night or of darkness. People who get drunk, unbelievers get drunk in the night, carouse in the night. But we who are children of the light, children of the day, we know what's coming. Why? Because God has told us in His Word what's coming. And yet a lot of Christians are clueless. Their churches don't want to go there. They don't want to teach Bible prophecy. Too controversial. Makes people uncomfortable. We don't want to go there. That's very sad. Why are so many Christians ignorant of these things? Well, there's several reasons. Some churches, yeah, they don't want to go there. But I tell you what, a big part of the problem today is that most of the mainline denominations don't take the Bible literally. Consequently, many of their members who profess to be Christians don't also take the Bible literally. Therefore, they don't believe in the rapture or the second coming, which means they are not looking for Jesus' return. Then you have all those Christians today that have embraced the prosperity gospel. And they're being told, because they've gathered to themselves teachers to tickle their ears, they have been, are being told that it's God's will you be prosperous. That's the whole point Jesus came, I guess, to keep you healthy and wealthy. And because of it, they're not doing what Paul said when he says, don't set your mind, uh, but he said, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, right? Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, they can be ripped off easily instead of lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. They'll never be stolen. They'll be waiting for you when you get there. But you have many Christians today that are bought into this prosperity gospel. And you know what? They believe God wants primarily to build them a kingdom on the earth, to prosper them, make their businesses successful. And therefore, they're not really looking for Jesus' return because their eyes are focused squarely on this life and how much God's going to give to me and bless me in the way of money. However, many other Christians in in churches today aren't looking for the Lord's coming because they believe He won't come until they Christianize the world. It's called Kingdom Now or uh, Reconstructionism. Christian Reconstructionism basically teaches that it's the church's responsibility to kind of deconstruct this uh, present evil age of man's rule on earth and then to reconstruct it by voting into office Christians who will then pass righteous legislation that will transform the world into a kind of a Christian utopia. See, It has its roots, guys, in liberal theology, which has always seen the church's mission as that of saving humanity, but not from hell. Saving humanity from poverty, injustice, famine, disease, and lately from other things like global warming and other kind of environmental issues that are damaging and even destroying the earth. Many in the church of Jesus Christ today have become very green. They've become environmentalists. They think our main calling is to save the planet Earth. When Jesus prayed in John 17, I don't pray for the world, Father. I pray for those you have given me out of the world. But this kingdom now theology has become the fastest growing movement in the church today. Uh, These are churches that put down the teaching of prophecy. They say it causes people to have their heads in the clouds, quote unquote. All right. They claim that people like you guys, you have an escapist, you know, those, you folks that believe in the rapture and all that and study prophecy, um, you have an escapist mentality. You're wasting your time studying prophecy and looking for the rapture, which isn't even true, and it's a joke, they say, to think you're going to get, you know, 
helicoptered out of here, you know, before the judgment comes. You know, they mock us because we have this escapist mentality. They claim it's keeping you guys from the real mission of the church, which is to go out into all the world and bring social justice, which is just Christianized Marxism if you studied it, okay? Social justice is a Christianized form of Marxism, leveling the playing field, taking away from the wealthy, giving it to the poor. That's our mission, going out there and reforming society, um, healing diseases, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, bringing mankind into unity and love, okay? And so as we do that, we bring the kingdom of God to the earth. Once we get it all set up and the kingdom going and the world Christianized, then Jesus is going to come back and inherit the kingdom the church has built or established on the earth for him. And they sincerely feel that for a Christian to believe that Jesus is going to come and rapture his church at a time when the world has become so bad and therefore ripe for God's judgment, for us to teach that and believe that, that's an escapist mentality, and they believe it's to declare defeat. Because, you know, we haven't done our job, we haven't cleaned the world up. See, here's the problem. You say, well, what's wrong with feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and and trying to help people and, and bringing unity and love to the world. What's wrong with that? Look, there's nothing wrong with that per se. The Antichrist is going to do a great job with that, by the way. He's going to bring all kinds of good things to the earth. Unity. Love. The problem is unity, not based on truth, and love of all kinds of people, and acceptance of all kinds of people, no matter what they're involved in, who they worship, what they worship, what sins they embrace. Look, Unity is a very good thing if it's based on God's truth. And love, you don't love people if you let them feel secure in their sin. Jesus told us in the Great Commission to go out into all the world and do what? Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, heal AIDS, bring unity to the world. He said, go out into all the world and preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. And teach them everything I have commanded you. Look, God changes the world one heart at a time. But the church has not been called to change the world. The church has been called to preach the gospel. And once God gets a hold of a person's heart and their lives begin to be transformed from the inside out, they're going to be better citizens. They're going to be law-abiding. They're going to be loving. They're going to want to help people. Look, in the, in the course of, of going out there into all the world and preaching the gospel, sure we're going to meet physical needs because God loves people. We love people. But that's not our main mission. We are not a social agency. We are a spiritual entity. We are the body of Christ. We are his hands, his feet, his his eyes, his mouth. We are his body on the earth. Jesus said, I have come to what? Seek and to save those who are lost. That was his calling. That was our commission. And we do that with all of our hearts until the trumpet sounds, the angel shouts, and Jesus says, come up here. And we will have done the work he's called us to do. And then he will lay his hands on a new generation during the tribulation period. Starting by converting 144,000 Jews who will become Paul the Apostles and convert literally millions upon millions upon millions of people worldwide who will bring the gospel to those tribulation folks. But you know, the church used to be so excited about the Lord's coming, the rapture of the church. When I got saved in the early 80s, or actually late 70s, um, that was all the rage. Everything has changed now. I want to read to you what author and apologist Dave Hunt said on this issue. 
He said, being taken to heaven in the rapture has been to a large extent replaced by the rapidly growing new hope that the church is destined to take over the world and establish the kingdom of God. The focus has turned from winning souls for citizenship in heaven to political and social action aimed at cleaning up society. Scarcely a sermon is being preached about the world to come. Attention is focused instead upon achieving success in this one. If we have a big enough march on Washington and vote in enough of our candidates, then we can make this world a beautiful, safe, moral, and satisfying, quote-unquote, Christian place for our grandchildren. This is a very enticing scenario, Dave said. He goes on. The trend has accelerated. We could cite the current struggle going on in the Southern Baptist Church as one example. It is the largest Protestant denomination, but is presently losing members at a surprising and growing rate to independent churches that deny the rapture, deny any place for national Israel in prophecy, and believe that an elite group of overcomers, quote-unquote, will soon manifest immortality in their bodies without the resurrection or second coming and take over the world for Christ. Only then will Christ return. Not to take his bride home to heaven, as the Bible clearly teaches, however, but to reign over the kingdom that has been established by her for him on this earth. One of the leaders of this movement writes, and I quote, You can study books about going to heaven in the so-called rapture if that turns you on. We want to study the Bible to learn to live and to love and to bring heaven to earth. End quote. And folks, we are seeing more and more churches adopt this theology, especially those in the emerging church movement. But there are many others. There are seeker-friendly churches, purpose-driven churches, Roman Catholic churches, and Reformed churches who all believe that it's the church's mission to bring the kingdom of God to the earth. We see all of these churches working for this goal. But Dave Hunt ends the article with this chilling statement. He said, and I quote, Consequently, those who expect to meet Christ with their feet still planted on earth a Christ, quote-unquote, who has arrived to take over the kingdom that they have established in his name, will have been badly deceived. In fact, they could have been working to build the earthly kingdom for the Antichrist. Yet this teaching that we must take over the world and set up the kingdom for Christ has become the fastest-growing movement within the church today, end quote. Let me just finish with verse 4, and then I'm going to go back and just comment on some other things that we'll close. In verse 4, Jesus says, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Jesus had already basically said this once earlier in Matthew chapter 12, using Jonah as an example of his own death, burial, and resurrection. He said, look, just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, if you read the account of Jonah in his own book, I believe when that great fish swallowed Jonah, Jonah died. In fact, if you read the account, he talks about going down to Sheol. I believe Jonah died. And I believe as God had this great fish regurgitate him up on the shores, where he would eventually walk to Nineveh and preach repentance to these people, when the great fish regurgitated Jonah... Uh, onto the shore, he was resurrected and went forth in new life and power. Didn't look so good, um, but he had power. That's all that matters, really. If I had a choice of looking good or having power, I'd take the power. But um, 
the Lord addressed them as a wicked and an adulterous generation. Wicked because they were willfully blind to their own Messiah. Adulterous because they were spiritually unfaithful to their God. Jesus said, look, I have done enough miracles for you people. Your desire for another sign is not rooted in any kind of sincere uh, desire to, to want to know the truth. You just want something more you can use against me. He said, look, the only sign you're going to get now is the sign of the prophet Jonah, which is the greatest sign Jesus did, his own resurrection. And that would be the ultimate sign to Israel that Jesus was, in fact, not only their Messiah, but the Son of God who had walked among them. Peter even brings that out in his sermon in Acts 2. You can look at verse 22. But let me just end with this now, okay? Because I want to go back and kind of revisit the first three verses of chapter 16, where Jesus indicted the people of his day for not knowing the signs that pointed to his first coming, and those that ignored it suffered the consequences. How about today? What about the signs of his second coming? 300 of his first coming, you realize there's over 500 with regard to his second coming? They give us a detailed look at what we can expect before Jesus returns at the second coming. Not the rapture. There are no signs that point to the rapture. The rapture is imminent. It can happen at any time. But we do have plenty of signs that indicate his second coming is near. Now, if you believe like me, the rapture is going to happen at least seven years before the second coming, then as the signs of the second coming get ever nearer, well, the rapture is even nearer than that. What about these signs? Well, there's 500, and I want to start today on a detailed study of each of those. No, I'm not going to do that. You started to sweat a little bit because you thought, this guy, he'll do it. I mean, I, I know this guy. I mean, he, he'll, he'll, he'll spend three years on this. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give you one today. And we'll then maybe finish up next time. I can't guarantee that. But the message is entitled, The Signs of His Coming. First on the list in these last days that indicate Jesus Christ is coming soon was when Israel became a nation once again. Now you have to understand, up until 1948, people believed in Bible prophecy, of course, and taught it, although they had a very limited understanding, not like we do. Our understanding of Bible prophecy is a lot greater the closer we've gotten to Jesus' return. But up until 1948, May 14th, when Israel declared itself a nation again, there was a lot of great Christians who could not believe that was a literal thing. They believed it was allegorical. There is no way a nation that has been dead for 1,900 years is going to be resurrected to become a nation again. never happened. It's got to be allegorical. Uh, in fact, uh, the church is now Israel, all right? And so it's talking about the church being born and so on, right? Uh-uh, okay? God's program for Israel and the church have always been separate. And I don't have time to get into a big thing about replacement theology and all that. We'll do that some other time. But when Israel became a nation again, May 14, 1948, you have to understand what an exciting shockwave that sent to the church. All of a sudden, people were looking at their Bibles going, you mean God was being literal when he said this? What else have we missed prophetically that we have allegorized that is really literal? And they began to go back and look at the prophecies with a new eye. It created a tremendous uh, excitement 
that had never been seen since the beginning of the church, I believe. But turn to Ezekiel 37. I'll show you some of the prophecies that talked about this. In fact, in chapter 36, God says, I'm going to bring you back to your land and I'm going to make your land like the Garden of Eden and you're going to send fruit throughout the entire world. Do you realize that when the Turks occupied the land of Israel, they taxed the residents based on how many trees they had on their property. So what do you think they did? They cut the trees down. Erosion took place and washed all the topsoil into the Mediterranean. It became a wasteland. Mark Twain visited in the 1800s and said, i got to tell you, yuck. Now I'm paraphrasing, okay? <laughs> Nothing there. <laughs> we could say no form nor beauty that we should desire it. But when God began to bring Jews back to their land, they bought this swamp land for pennies. And they began a massive reforestation project. They planted eucalyptus trees, which absorbed much moisture. They drained, they drained the water from the Sharon Valley. And they began to plant. And if you go to Israel today, they, I forgot, are like the third major export of fruit throughout the world. You can't go anywhere. You go in the desert. We go down to Jericho. We stop at, um, at produce stands where you get all kinds of delicious fruit in the desert. It's amazing. That's just chapter 36. But chapter 37, I'll just, we'll just pick it up in verse 12. Where God says, Therefore prophesy, speaking to Ezekiel, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Now, he's talking about bringing them out of their graves. It, it goes back to something he showed them in verses 1 through 11, where God took Ezekiel to a valley and showed him a valley full of dry bones which indicates these bodies have been dead for a very long time. And he said to Israel, to Ezekiel, what are these bones? Well, Lord, I don't know. You know. And he says, Ezekiel, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Dry, meaning they have been dead a long time. He's talking about the nation being dead. Well, we know that the nation up until 1948 was dead for about 1900 years. In 70 AD, when the Romans conquer, and didn't conquer, they um, reasserted their dominance and uh, wiped out a million six hundred thousand Jews, and the rest scattered. The term "wandering Jew" came into into play at that time. But since 70 AD, the nation has been dead. He says in verse 21, "Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God: Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations." wherever they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations. Remember Judah and Israel? The nation split under Rehoboam, Solomon's son. Well, God says, when I bring you back into your land the second time, he says, you're not going to be a divided people anymore. You're going to be one nation. He also said in another place, you're going to speak pure Hebrew. Hebrew was a dead language for all those years. No language has ever been dead and revived again to be the common tongue of a people. That was such a miracle. The L.A. Times, 
when it happened, uh, ran a full-page spread talking about how miraculous that was. He said, I'm gonna, you're going to be one nation. You shall never be divided into two nations again. That, this prophecy has already been fulfilled. And as I said, on May 14, 1948, Israel was raised from the dead. After 1,900 years, they declared themselves a nation once again. Now, when Israel was to become a nation, God had prophesied that the city of Jerusalem would become a major, listen, a major problem for the international community leading up to an invasion of Israel. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 3, we read these words. And it shall happen that in that day I will make Jerusalem, in the day that God establishes his people back in the land. And of course, up until 1967, May 14, 1948, they became a nation. But Israel did not have control of Jerusalem. It was a divided city. But in 67, they gained full control of the city again. But God said, It shall happen in that day I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. Do you realize that the UN spends 40% of its time on discussing what to do about Jerusalem? Jerusalem has become become a cup of trembling for all people. Why? Because you have Christians, Jews, and Muslims who all hold Jerusalem sacred. It could be the beginning of a world war at any time. That's what the world is afraid of. That, you know, over this this one city, there's going to be something that's going to arise which will be a flashpoint to bring the whole world into war. Now, the Christians won't uh, do anything like that, of course. Uh, Israel just wants to live in peace in their own land. So guess who the third party is that we think is going to cause the problems? It's the Muslim community, which surrounds Israel. I mean, the Muslim nations are irate that Israel is in control of Jerusalem, which they now call a sacred place, even though Jerusalem is never mentioned in the Quran as having any spiritual significance to Muslims. The Muslims only became very interested in in, in Jerusalem when Israel took it over. For 3,300 years, Jerusalem was the capital, was the Jewish capital. Jerusalem has never been the capital of any Arab or Muslim entity. Even when the Jordanians occupied Jerusalem, they never sought to make it their capital, and no Arab leader ever visited it. You realize Jerusalem is mentioned over 700 times in the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures, not once in the Quran. Jews pray facing Jerusalem. Muslims pray with their backs towards Jerusalem. But they claim that Israel has stolen that land from the poor Palestinian people, They call their presence there an illegal occupation. And, of course, the news media buys right into this. The mainstream media, what a joke. They call Israel's presence there an illegal occupation, and they have vowed to liberate Palestine. But hear me out. This might be new for some of you. I don't know. The truth is, listen, there was never a Palestinian people, nation, language, culture, or religion. Never. The claim that the folks living there called Palestinians have lived there for thousands of years, that that is their homeland, and they have lived there for thousands of years, folks, that is pure historical revisionism and a hoax. It's a lie. That land was originally the land of Canaan, right? Inhabited by the Canaanites who were wicked, a wicked people. God gave them 400 years to repent. They did not. So eventually God ordered their destruction because of their wickedness. 
And then said to them, look, because you refuse to repent, I'm going to drive you out of this land. I'm going to give it to my people Israel. So Canaan became the land of Israel, which God gave to them as a perpetual possession. I'll give you one scripture. There's dozens. Genesis 17, verse 8. I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as, listen, an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And the people who live there who are called Palestinians today are actually Arabs by birth, language, and culture. Close relatives of the surrounding Arab peoples around the nation of Israel who came to Israel because of the prosperity of Israel. You know, Israel is surrounded by 80 million Muslims. Many of them are Arabs who were drawn to Israel because when it became a nation again, God began to prosper it. And as God prospered it, well, people wanted to be a part of that prosperity. In, you know, in, in AD 130, let me give you a little history of that land, just for a moment, and we'll close. In AD 130, the Romans rebuilt Jerusalem as a pagan city with a temple to Jupiter where the Jewish temple had once sat. Well, I'll tell you what, this so infuriated the Jewish people, they revolted. Rome killed 500,000 and sold many thousands more into slavery. And Rome was so angry at this revolt that they renamed Israel Syria-Palestina after the perennial ancient enemies of the Jews, the Philistines. When they renamed the area Palestina, everybody who lived there became Palestinians. Jews and Arabs. Jews always outnumbered Arabs, though. Many to one. It was their land, right? We know that during World War II, the British Army had a Palestinian brigade made up of all Jewish soldiers. Back then, there was something called the Palestinian Symphony Orchestra, an all-Jewish orchestra. They had a newspaper called the Palestinian Post, all-Jewish newspaper. Because anybody living in that land was automatically called a Palestinian. There weren't any Palestinians. There was never a Palestinian people. Okay, it was the folks who lived there. Rome says, now you're all Palestinians. That's what it was. You remember, maybe some of you don't. I mean, I wasn't around back then, but um, 1917, November. Britain, who was the world power at that time, decided it would be a good idea to establish a homeland for the Jewish people. And so they set aside the land that we now call Israel for a Jewish state. Well, it never kind of got much traction, even though they had passed the declaration, the Balfour Declaration. Um, in the 1930s, it was kind of set aside. And after the Jews were, were horrifically and mercilessly butchered under Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, the world felt kind of bad that they had turned their backs on the Jews, rightly so. So they decided, in fact, the UN passed a resolution, 181, in November of 1947, which said that they were going to take the land they had originally allotted for Israel, but they were going to divide it into two parts, because you've got to give some to the Palestinians, which is Arabs, while the Jews would have the other part. Well, the Jews said, we'll take anything we can get. That's okay with us. Something's better than nothing. The Arabs said, we will not accept that at all. And if Israel declares itself a nation again, we will push it into the Mediterranean Sea. May 14, 1948, Israel declared itself a nation. The next day, the Arabs attacked. And what they said to their people, these were the surrounding nations, what they said to the Arabs living in the land of Israel, you guys get away from your farms, your houses, clear out. We're going to push the Jews. 
These, were, these countries had well-organized armies and weaponry, tanks and so on, battleships. Israel had nothing. They were brand new. And the, Arabs, the Muslims said, look, to their Muslim brothers, you clear out. We're going to come in, push the Jews into the Mediterranean Sea. When we do, you can come back, have your land and their land. Oh, okay, clear it out. So here come the Muslims. Now they attacked Israel, right? You should read the stories. I mean, there are some DVDs that were created about this. Absolutely miraculous. They should never have survived. Here is the whole Egyptian armada off the coast in the Mediterranean going to bomb Israel, you know, with long-range guns. You had two Israelis climb into a Cessna. One guy opened the door, hung out, throwing Molotov cocktails down on the Egyptian ships to hopefully turn around and went home. <laughs> Miraculously, they won that war. And so now you know what the Muslim nation said to their Muslim brothers? So they said, get out of the way. You can't come and live with us. See, we want to make an example of you to the world. How that, you know, Israel has thrown you out of your land, you know, and made you refugees. They used their own people as political pawns. And that's where this myth started. That Israel has thrown out these poor Palestinians from their land. And has occupied now illegally the Palestinian land. What a crock of baloney. Yet the Arabs living in Israel call themselves Palestinians and claim that that is their homeland. You know, the Muslim nations still refuse to acknowledge Israel's right to exist. There is no Arab map in the world that shows the state of Israel. They refuse to acknowledge Israel exists or they have a right to exist. And so the Muslims in the world, those especially around the nation of Israel, have been gearing up for a holy war against Israel for a long time. We've seen little bits and pieces of attempts, but there is a big one coming. The Bible predicts that in the end times, Israel will be attacked by a confederation of enemy nations, mostly Muslim. And those of you who have been keeping up on the Middle East know that the scenario the Bible has predicted over 2,500 years ago is being fulfilled in our day. In other words, the right nations that God prophesied would come together are coming together. They're coming together quickly. They are forming a confederacy of the very nations God prophesied about in Ezekiel 37, 8, 9. Uh, Psalm 83 and so on. We'll talk more about that next time. But you know, the signs of his coming are everywhere. Israel was one of the big ones. There's a lot of other signs that we see that relate not only to Israel directly, but that are coming from the world scene that indicate Jesus Christ is coming soon. And so next time we will look at a little closer at the signs of the times. Now, we're not going to be caught off guard. You guys won't be. You, you, you're students of prophecy. But a lot of people who go to church are clueless. They're clueless. In fact, their whole deal is unity and peace, which is exactly what the Antichrist is going to bring. Now, when Jesus comes the second time, you're going to have true unity and true peace. But there's going to come a counterfeiter before that, the Antichrist who will unite the world in a one-world government. His sidekick, the false prophet, will unite the world in a one-world religion. i got some interesting things to share with you about that, okay, next time we meet. It's interesting. So we'll look at that next time. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us in darkness, that these things should overtake us as a thief. We are sons and daughters of light and of the day. You have told us in your word what to expect. We don't know everything in detail, but we know uh, in general what is ha going to happen before Jesus comes back. 
And we're seeing it, Lord, all around us. So, Lord, we are excited. We are awake. We are watching. Many in the church are not. They're asleep and they're not watching. And, Lord, we just pray that you give us grace to stay vigilant, not to go to sleep in the light, but to stay watching for your return, living accordingly and telling others about you. The time is short. 